Okay, this morning our text is Hebrews. Uh, I think I had one verse and six left to cover. I can find my last page. Maybe, maybe I'll find it. Here it is. Hebrews 6.20. It says here, where Jesus entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, the where refers back to verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So last week we talked about having an anchor within the veil and what that nautical terminology was signifying and is that our assurance and our hope is based on the fact that Jesus Christ entered into the holiest place once for all with his own blood, made the sacrifice for sins, and there he is making intercession for us as our great high priest. And that's going to be a theme that will go for three or four more chapters here in the book of Hebrews. The reason I ask about whether you got the latest CIC article I want you to know that the next article is going to be dealing with Hebrews. I'm going to deal with means of grace. And what I'm going to point out in the next article is this. this all this mysticism that we exposed in the last article is a, a false way of coming to God. It's, it's people who don't are not satisfied with what God has given us. The fact that we have a high, great high priest, who makes intercession for us. The fact, in fact, it says in Hebrews that through him we draw near to God, not through an altered state of consciousness. They're not satisfied with that, and that's why they go to all this stuff. But what I want to do next time is explain how great the provision we really do have is. And that it's really insulting to God to say, that's not good enough, I need something else. I need something like the pagans have because I'm not satisfied with what God did. And so let's, as we explore the idea that we have a forerunner who's gone into the very holiest place in the very presence of God and that we draw near through him, I think that it should become clear that you really can't get any closer to God in this life than you can just through prayer and the basic means that God's given us of coming to God by faith through Jesus. So, there's an anchor of holding on. It's sure and steadfast. It's not going to break loose in the wind and the waves. Did you see the video on Florida? Oh, it's terrible. I can't imagine. And maybe that's an illustration that life is, is just like a continual hurricane. All right? As we go through this life, the, the battles of, against sin and temptation is like a continual hurricane. And our anchor better be anchored within the veil <laughs> or we're going to be busted loose. Hebrews 6.20, where Jesus entered as a forerunner. It's the only time this word forerunner is used in the New Testament. Um, and it's the idea that probably that, and there's kind of a range of meanings. Let me find that, my material on that. Greek. In fact, Hebrews was written in some of the most advanced Greek found anywhere in the New Testament. So whoever wrote Hebrews not only totally understood Judaism, but was fluent in the Greek language. And very fluent. And the old theory that Paul did is basically doesn't have too many people to defend it anymore because Paul's Greek isn't anywhere near this good. 
Um, not that guy, I guess guy could inspire Paul to write in better Greek than he normally does, but the, the vocabulary and word usage and stuff is very profound. And the use of the metaphors that he comes up with are uh, people that uh, like to really understand Greek well enough to know the difference between high quality grammar and more ordinary grammar really are impressed with the book of Hebrews. So 620 is this forerunner idea that is, I'm looking for page 154, here we go. Um, This is William Lane. A new hope by which we draw near to God. Verse 19. He says this, The objective content of the promised hope is the assurance that with the consummation of redemption, the community may draw near to God in priestly service. They have already been encouraged to draw near through prayer. 4.16 And here it says that it signifies this inner sanctuary. It signifies the inner curtain that separated the sanctuary of God from the holy place in the tabernacle. This area could only be entered by the high priest alone and then only on the occasion of the Day of Atonement. The representation of Jesus having entered the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf, verse 20, presupposes this background. The expression on our behalf introduces the motif of the unique self-offering of the high priest as the ground of the Christian certainty. Jesus is our eternal high priest who has opened for us the true presence of God. His presence behind the curtain is the firm pledge that we shall also pass through the curtain and enter within the inner sanctuary. And that's where we get the idea of the forerunner. The forerunner is because Jesus has entered, we are, we are certain, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that one day we shall also follow Him into the very presence of God. Amen. Yes. Exactly. So our hope is firmly, firmly grounded in the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this truth that's expressed, by the way, only in the book of Hebrews do you have any teaching in the New Testament about Jesus being our high priest. That's unique to the book of Hebrews. That's a special contribution that's given to us by the author of Hebrews through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But why was it important in this book to talk about the great high priest Jesus Christ. Because people want something more tangible. That's what tempts people to go into this mysticism. That, that one book that I quoted in my article, Seeing is Believing, uh, Dr. Boyd says that you can meet a Jesus with your five physical senses. That you can experience Jesus with your five physical senses. And... That was the very thing that was tempting the Hebrews to go back to Judaism because the temple was still standing. When, when they got this letter, they could still go down to Jerusalem and literally see a real high priest on the Day of Atonement. And, they could, and, they, and that was tangible. You could hear the sounds. You could smell the smells. You could see the sights and experience this kind of Judaism 
with your five physical senses. And so they were, what about this Jesus? We can't see him. He's, he's in, he went into heaven like Moses went up in Mount Sinai and they made the golden calf. They couldn't see him. We, we want a high priest who's tangible. We want one that we can talk to. We want one we can physically experience. And what does it say in Hebrews 11? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. That, that the matter of fact, that you're much closer to God just by faith, trusting Jesus, and believing that He is in the very presence of God interceding for you, and that you have access to the throne of grace, than you do coming up with something tangible that you can grab with your hands or put on your shelf. Or go into your subconscious mind and have a visionary experience. Yeah, that's what I said, didn't I? Instead of seeing is believing, the truth of the Bible is believing is seeing. Yes? Well, Islam, their tangible, tangible thing is making a pilgrimage. And they're, I mean, they don't, I don't think they have a high priest in Islam. They got these, what do they call these guys? Ayatollahs and Imam? Okay. So they've got holy men. Well, you know, what can we say? Look at Roman Catholicism. They got these cardinals with this red garb and his fancy hat. There's something about human nature that wants some glorious person that they can see. And rather than just by faith, yes. So, in the time, to put Hebrews in perspective then, and why this is so important, is that when it was written, they had an alternative. The actual practice of Judaism with its priestly service. And they're tempted to go back to that. Probably not to actually renounce Christ, but they're probably thinking, well, we can have Christ and our high priest. That's generally what happens, is that apostates don't actually renounce Christ, they just supplant him as far as his superiority with something else. And then just leave Christ kind of in a lesser role. And, and so that's what the problem is. Yeah. For Samuel 8. Yeah, we want a tangible king that we can go and... It's an amazing story in Samuel, uh, by the way, Dean... Um, I was just looking it up today because I was looking for cross-references on chapter 7 and I was talking about the tithe that Abraham paid to Melchizedek. Well, in 1 Samuel 8, when, when they wanted a king, Samuel says, well, you know what this king's going to do? He's going to take a tenth of this and a tenth of that and a tenth of the other thing. And he's going to take your young men and put them in his armies and your young women and put them in his harem. And he's going to oppress you and you're going to cry out. And they said, that's Okay. <laughs> we want a king so bad that we don't care that he abuses us. And that's, and that's the same thing that goes on when people submit themselves to abusive leadership in the church. If they have some hot, high and holy guy that they can have on a pedestal, they don't care if, they, if the guy abuses them. Well, they, they, they just want... They're looking, 
they're looking for something that you can't find in man. It's only found in Christ who is in heaven and you can't see him. Yes. You can gain your status through being associated with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just consider, for example, if you're one of these Hebrew Christians in, say, 65 A.D., before the destruction of the temple, you become a Christian. But all your Jewish friends now really don't want anything to do with you. They turn against you. And they're saying, what do you have? Let's just, let's just put ourselves in that historical situation. You're a Jew. You used to participate in everything they had. Now you're not going to synagogue. You're not going on the Day of Atonement. You're not submitted to the high priest or the Levitical priesthood. And you're gathering in a nondescript place with a bunch of ragtag Christians that don't have anything going for them. And your Jewish friend says, well, what do you have? Who's your high priest? Well, Jesus. Well, where is he? In heaven. Oh. Well, you, so you can't even see him. Nope. Where's your uh, synagogue? Well, we don't have one. Where's your temple? We don't have one. Well, what do you have? Well, we have faith. Well, that doesn't seem like much. And so what Hebrews is trying to do is counteract that sense of lack by saying, no, you have more than they do. You have more than you can imagine. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And that you're looking for a heavenly city just like the patriarchs in the Old Testament did when they put their faith in God. And some of those people, it says in Hebrews 11, were sawn asunder of whom the world is not worthy. So we're called to a higher understanding of a faith, even though it's seemingly less tangible to somebody who is looking for something more tangible. Okay? So, let's look at some cross-reference. So, we have a forerunner who became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this sets up a, a extended teaching about the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood, which Jesus is the permanent high priest of, compared to the Levitical one. But first of all, some cross-references. We'll start back over here with Sam, John 14, 2 and 3, Norma, Romans 8. I can't read my own writing. It's either 34 or 39. You can decide which one you like better. <laughs> you can do both if you like them both. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Artist, Hebrews 1, 3. And Peter, uh, Hebrews 9.24. And we'll start back over here. Kathy, Hebrews 12.2. Okay, John 14, 2 and 3. He says, Amen. He says, I'm coming and I'm going to 
come again, and where I am, there you may be also. So that's this idea of the forerunner, that he has ascended into the heavens and gone in the presence of God is our assurance that one day we will too. And he's got a place for us. And again, think about the tangible issue. The disciples, that was in John 14, John 14, John 15, John 16. Jesus spends all three chapters, as far of John's account of it, I mean, assuring them that they're actually going to be better off when he leaves. Which they're having a hard time believing. We see you, you're here. <laughs> Face to face with Jesus, and he's our master, and he's trying to tell us he's going to be better off if he leaves. That's what he says in John. And why? Well, for one thing, when I leave, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He's with you and will be in you. He says that. Don't worry, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And you need me to make atonement. You need me to ascend into heaven so that I will send the Spirit of God, and you'll be one. So, the same issue there, and in that assurance, he says, don't worry, where I am, you'll be also. But not now. Okay, Romans 8, which one you decided was right? 34 or 39? Well, okay, both. 34 and 39, that's fine. That's 34, right? That's the one we wanted. That's definitely the one we wanted. Because it's the same idea. Who, who, who condemns? Jesus forgave us. He's at the right hand of God. How many times does the Bible tell us that? You don't meet Jesus in your alpha state. You meet, he's at the right hand of God. You don't have to go into a mystical trance to see Jesus. He's at the right hand of God. the wrong one. I would make that argument. I would say, uh, yeah, I, the claim I made was this. If you go into this, I'll use these techniques to have this mystical experience. It's not you may be deceived. It is you will be deceived. You will be deceived because these beings that meet you there will give you whatever experience you expect would actually be from God. And that's how they deceive you. If you if you go into this state, you're not going to meet um, Buddha or Muhammad there if you're a Christian. You'll meet Jesus there. So you think. So you think. Yeah. Yeah, so, so it's very important, uh, and we need the same encouragement as these people in the New Testament. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is making intercession for us. It is real. It is real. And I need to know that. And I need to know that His intercession is effectual. And that if I come to the throne of grace, I can't go anywhere more important. I can't get met any, I can't get any closer to God. Um, this, this argument just has to be get, got out there because people are running to everything else because they just are like the Old Testament um, 
wilderness wanderers who got a bail when they didn't have a cap. Do you want to switch for five minutes? Are you... Uh, we have a major problem. We, can't, we have no cell phones. So if you want me to take this... <laughs> okay. Uh, Ryan, being how you wrote a book on this topic, I brought in an expert here. <laughs> you wrote a book. Here. Tell them about why it's important to know that, Mel- that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's what we're talking about. And I got five minutes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you can sell some books. All right. Well, okay, let's, I'll just start with this. The, Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek is important. Let me quick ask you, what, what verse are you on? Can someone read it quick? Okay, what's interesting, okay, so you're in six. What's interesting is we've just, they've just gotten done talking about both the promise and the oath, right? You have a promise and an oath by these two unchangeable things. They've given us this anchor for the soul. Why is this such an anchor for the soul? And then he makes mention of Jesus entering into the order, uh, entering, being designated the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's interesting here is Throughout the whole book of Hebrews, there's this speaking of this oath that was made by the Father. And the oath was, you are, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the oath, because it talks very clearly. The Lord has sworn, he's made an oath, that he's instituted this great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that such an anchor for the soul? Well, as we progress throughout Hebrews, we find out that the big difference between Jesus and the other priests is that Jesus is of this order of Melchizedek. And once we get into seven, we get to find out that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Jesus continues forever. Now, the priests under the Old Covenant, were making sacrifices which never could perpetually cleanse from sin. So you had to continually make sacrifices. Every new season, every new offer, a new offering was given. Now, Jesus, being of the order of Melchizedek, changes everything because there is one sacrifice, the cross, And Jesus has entered his priesthood permanently, so he's always making atonement. Now, that is why this oath is so assuring. He has sworn, the Lord has sworn, he's always going to be in this position. You are forever a priest. So he is the perfect priest with the perfect sacrifice. And because of that, he is continually making intercession for us. And that is why this is such an anchor for the soul, as we read in this chapter six, I think I saw Keith have his hand up. Yep, there's that. That's the difference, and, and the author of Hebrews goes into that later on, saying they were great in numbers because they could all they'd all they'd always run into this roadblock of mortality. You, they could not continue. And the other thing is, is they were always making atonement for their own sins. 
they'd first make atonement for their own sins and then for the people. Whereas Jesus does not make atonement for his own sins, but he, he is the atonement because he's the perfect spotless lamb. So it, what really it, this is, it's, um, it's an advanced course in the gospel. This isn't a different gospel um, because earlier on in chapter 6, he said, I, um, I, um, let's, let's move on. Let's pursue. Um, let's move on to maturity. But you're gonna need, you, you need milk again. And the thing is, he wants to give them solid food. And solid food, as we find out, is teaching them about this whole order of Melchizedek and why it's so important. But he says, I want, you know, I want to teach you these things, but you're slow to learn. And it's not that he's getting into something like the deeper Christian life or, or, or uh, something beyond the, or beyond the gospel. It's simply building upon the foundation of the gospel into something into the deeper depths of what it really is. Go ahead, Carolyn. Well, there was, yeah, and, well... Yeah, go ahead, Keith, real quick. Hebrews, we probably wouldn't understand it. Yeah. Okay. Thank. You. Hey. Thanks. Go. Uh, by the way, your guitar. Make sure the volume. The volume is turned all the way down on it. Oh, he turned it down. Okay. All right. There you go. <laughs> I'm also the sound man, so we're back here. Yes. 
get back to his little game. So you say all these times the preachers want to save, always say they say no. Yes, God saves to the utmost. He's interceding for you, preach with assurance, and he'll keep you. He saves you, and he'll bring you through. Even if you have to spank your lover in a thousand times to discipline you, <laughs> he can bring you through. Okay. Artist, Hebrews 1 3. Oh, I'm sorry, did you probably gave up on us here. <laughs> okay. Hebrews 1 3. Wow, awesome verse. Talks about the deity of Christ, the glory of Christ, the work of Christ, the position of Christ. And and it says again, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having purged sins. So so there we go. Where do you meet Jesus? By faith. Amen. Hebrews 9.24 So he, he, he entered heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Amen. Is there some greater security? Do you think some high priest on, some priest on earth can do that for you? No. Amen. <laughs> well, by the way, you're going to go to the Benny Hinn meeting? <laughs> no. Okay, I got one more verse here. Uh, I didn't think so, Dan. I mean, maybe it'd be a good place to witness the people coming out because they ain't going to hear the gospel in there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, Kathy, do you still uh, have Hebrews 12, 2, waiting patiently here? Well, yeah, let me let me read that out of my new. See what the New American Standard says here. Hebrews twelve two is what we're looking for. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, fixing our eyes on what does that mean? Do we literally see Him? Exactly. Right. We don't. We don't have a. We can't see the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, Dean. Amen. And it says that once for all is quite often here in Hebrews, so it's important. All right, we're gonna get we're gonna make it to chapter seven today. Can you imagine two verses in one day? Yes. No, Melchizedek's a type of Christ. Right. Well, the oath is found in, he, in Psalm 110, where he says, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So that, that oath makes Christ the high priest forever. Uh, all, we're gonna study, that's the next thing we're gonna read here. So I think maybe your question will be answered by the text here. Right. Right. Because it's interesting, genealogies are very important to the Jews, as you well know. And, um, and it was in the case of Christ, and it's interesting that a genealogy is provided to prove that Christ is the king, Amen. the son of David. But there's no genealogy to prove that he is priest. And we're saying here he's king and priest. So he's king, the legitimate heir of David. He's priest after the order of Melchizedek, who has no biblical genealogy. Dean. I've heard that too, and so has Ryan, but our research has made it pretty clear that that's not the case. There's, there's a passage in um, Hebrews 7 that basically states that, that we'll get to here. Well, no, don't be sorry. We, all verses are fair game. <laughs> uh, it talks about the men receiving tithes from Abraham. So I think when it talks about him giving tithes to... Um, well, I know... Uh, too bad Ryan isn't still here. Uh, I'll have to get back to you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Let's just go on here and we'll explore that as we go. And I want to talk to Ryan because the two of us sat down one time and did a study on this and came to the conclusion that, that in, in Ryan preached a sermon on pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. There are these kind of theophanies, but we don't think Melchizedek is one because there's a distinction between the person of Christ and the person of Melchizedek as two different people. That's the main reason. All right, verse 1. For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him. Okay, this is recounted in uh, Genesis chapter 14. I preached a sermon on that one time, which is on our website, if you're interested in a whole exposition of that chapter. Um, what the author of Hebrews is going to do is delineate the nature of Christ's high priestly ministry and show that it is superior to the Levitical one. This is what, by the way, we've had an interlude of, of a chapter and a half. The author of Hebrews was going to teach on this in Hebrews 5, verse 11. And he talked and he introduces Melchizedek and he says, Of him, we have many things to say, but we can't because you become dull of hearing, because you don't want to learn. And so he spends a chapter and a half rebuking them for that, and then goes back and teaches it to them anyhow. <laughs> 
right. Now back to Melchizedek. I don't care if you want to learn it or not, you're going to. Uh, it's important. So, back 5.11 was the, where we left off this topic, and now we're back to it again. King of Salem. We've talked about this before. Um, what is Salem? Where is Salem? I mentioned it in my sermon. I think it's the short version of Jerusalem. Most scholars think there's a reference to Jerusalem, or at least the site of Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. Uh, when uh, in the early Canaanite period when Abraham was there before the conquest of Canaan by the Jews, that this Salem was the site that later became Jerusalem. The priest of the Most High God who met Abraham, and let's just look that up and read it. Pat, could you look up Genesis 14, 18 through 20? We'll just look at the text here. The, the context there was Abraham had had a war against these kings who had captured Lot in order to rescue Lot from them. All right. Okay. Yeah, Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. What uh, Melchizedek brought out was bread and wine, right? Is that what it says? Very interesting. Yeah, bread and wine. That's our Lord's Supper. Um, and he's called a priest. And he blesses Abraham. We're going to talk about that a little bit later here in Hebrews 7. But... Um, Earlier, Genesis 12.3, it says God would bless those that bless Abraham. <laughs> and, the, and here is this mysterious figure that appears and blesses Abraham, which is a good thing. And he received tithes from Abraham. So let's go to verse 2 of Hebrews 7. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So he's characterized by, and by the way, names are significant in the Old Testament. You probably know that. Names are, are worth knowing the meaning of because they often are given to people to signify something. And people's names would change to signify something at some great event in their life, like Abram becomes Abraham. And Jacob becomes Israel. Right? So names are important. And this is brought out here that he's king of righteousness and king of peace. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and Salem is, a ver- is um, another way of saying shalom, peace, Jerusalem, city of peace. So he's king of righteousness, king of peace. Now I'm going to have us look up some cross-references and see that righteousness and peace are characteristic of the Messianic kingdom. Okay? Genesis... Okay, um... No, Genesis 28, 20 to 22. And Edith, Psalm 72, 1 through 3. And Dennis, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. And Carolyn, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. 
And so we can see, we'll see some of these, through some of these passages, why the author of Hebrews is linking Melchizedek and Christ and Christ's messianic ministry. First one is uh, Genesis Okay, well, that, well, that one's about the tithe. Abraham spontaneously paid tithes here of the spoils of war. Later, Jacob does the same thing. There was no law commanding this. Nobody told him he ought to do this. He just voluntarily, uh, as an act of his faith, gave a tenth and, and made a, a vow that he'd give a tenth, yes. King of righteousness. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, and this is definitely very Hebrew, Jewish type of reasoning, and the fact that that. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. This whole thing is setting up an argument. Let me tell you where this argument's going. Um, the argument is going to be that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood because he's a, he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham blessed, or Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. The Jews paid tithes to the Levitical priests. All right. And Jesus is greater because Levite was still in Abraham's loins. Levi was a descendant of Abraham, so he's the lesser. And Melchizedek who received the tithes is the greater. Now that argument, when I first read this, I was in Bible college in 1971. The fall of 71 was the first time I read the book of Hebrews. I was a new Christian. I hadn't read the Bible. Okay, So I go to Bible college and I've had a lot of catching up to do because all everybody else there had been reading it all their life. And I, I didn't know anything. I had to start from scratch. And I remember reading Hebrews, and I read this whole thing, and I go, wow. What? It just, it, I, it just didn't make sense to me. Why go through all this chapter to prove this, and it doesn't even, the argument didn't even make any sense? Well, you know, what I found out was that I just didn't understand the Jewish background. I did not understand their idea of corporate solidarity. And, and he is writing to Jewish readers. And to them, this is a compelling argument. They would believe this reasoning and this logic because that's how they saw things and it helps us understand their thinking. Okay, next passage was Psalm 72, 1 through 3. It mentions righteousness here. 
Yes. It mentions righteousness, peace. May he judge the people of righteousness and let the mountains bring peace to the people. And so it, righteousness and peace are associated with messianic promises. Isaiah 9, 6-7, which are very clearly messianic. So here, Messiah is going to reign in righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace are, are, are key things, and that's what Melchizedek was about. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Amen. So, clearly, there's a link here. Melchizedek, righteousness and peace. Messiah, righteousness and peace. It says in Hebrews 7, verse 3, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Right here would be an evidence, Dean, for your question. Made like the Son of God is different than being the Son of God. That's how I would understand it. Yes. The Melchizedek priest says that doesn't need a genealogy. And that was very important to the Jews. <laughs> because if it did, then it would mean Jesus can't be called priest. Without father, without mother. Now, was that literal? Now, if we thought that was literal, then we would have to think that this was a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ. But what's key here is the without genealogy, without a recorded descent. And that was, is, is unusual in the book of Genesis. We've been studying Genesis when I preached through it on Sunday mornings every third or fourth Sunday, and we've noticed that genealogies and descent are what Genesis is all about. So-and-so is the son of so-and-so, and here's where they came from. Here's where Noah came from. Here's, here's the father of Abraham. Here's the father. And that is all through Genesis. All of a sudden, in the middle of all these people, all of whom have genealogies, if there's somebody important, comes this guy who's important and doesn't have one. So that stands out. And the author of Hebrews said, wait a second. Why does this guy have no genealogy? Because his priesthood doesn't require one. It's, it's given by appointment or oath, not inherited through genealogy, as Ryan was explaining. Yes. Right. Yeah. But the Hebrews and 
Well, yeah, the question was uh, that if we have trouble understanding because we don't understand the Hebrew mindset, how come the leaders of the Jews, who obviously did, didn't get it? Well, the problem, according to the Bible, is their sin nature. Because, because they, for example, look at the people that Jesus condemns in Matthew 23. They knew where Jesus was going to, where the Messiah would be born. Because they told Herod in Bethlehem. They knew the promises. They knew the Messiah was going to do these things. He did them. He demonstrated this. And they still didn't want to believe him because of jealousy and their own lust for power. Yes. Hardening of the heart. Right. Right. Yeah. There, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. In my uh, William Lane's commentary in Hebrews, he quotes these different ones who had discussed Melchizedek, Jews did. Because they themselves were thinking that he may have a key role. But the reason they missed Messiah when they saw him was the hardness of heart. And especially after he was raised from the dead, they still have a hardness of heart. The sin nature is what hardens people from the gospel. Well, that's the case for every sinner. Yeah, God has to graciously soften our hearts or we won't listen. Yeah. You know, Well, you know, um, I notice in witnessing the people that with any kind of a Christian religious tradition, the first thought they have is that they're okay already. Yes. You know, I've said to people, I don't use this terminology anymore because I found out it wasn't biblical, but when I was younger, I didn't know the difference. But we used to go door to door in the early 70s and knock on doors and ask people if they'd accepted Christ. All right? And the answer was, I never rejected him. <laughs> They said that again and again. Well, I never rejected him. I don't have a problem. I'm Lutheran. Get out of here. Um, and But part of the problem was I didn't understand the gospel as well as I should. That's, that's not really biblical terminology. Uh, rather than asking them if they'd accepted Christ, if they already were going to church, then they didn't think they needed to. And if they didn't, it didn't mean much to them. Why should I? I should have been preaching the law and the gospel like... Uh, John MacArthur talks about and Ray Comfort and people like that, that, you know, people don't see a need. They think they're okay the way they are. And we all do. We all come into this world thinking we're okay the way we are. So something's got to shake us out of our doldrums into the point that we, we aren't okay the way we are. We need a Savior. So that's why it's important. That's what Stephen was doing, Dan. You mentioned Stephen? 
How, have you read Stephen, Stephen's sermon in Acts? I mean, I'll tell you what, he's not going to win any D.L. Carnegie Awards. He says, and your fathers, the corporate solidarity ideas, if you don't understand that, and we're going to talk about it some more here in this Sunday school class, you can't understand the Bible. The Jews, if they, if they believed they were a son of Abraham, they literally, even if it was a thousand generations, Abraham literally is my father. I'm one with him. That's how they understood corporate solidarity. And if you start, Jesus comes and says to them, you are of your sons of the devil, you are sons of the devil, not Abraham. Well, they stone him. I mean, you can't tell us that. And so, who are you a son of? In a sense of being characterized by, Jesus says, you're the sons of the ones who murdered the prophets. And they say, you adorn the tombs of the righteous who were martyred. Saying, had we been alive in those days, we wouldn't have done that. We're the righteous ones who are being stoned. And Jesus said, no, you got it totally wrong. You're sons of the murderers. Amen. And you're going to prove yourself to be sons of the murderers because of what you're going to do next. And so Stephen, when he got in front of these people, his brothers, this is not anti-Semitic, this is Jews preaching to Jews, they're brothers, they're kinsmen. And Stephen got in front of them and he, and he recounted every wicked thing their fathers ever did. God did this and then you did this. God did this and then you rebelled. And God did this and sent this guy and then you killed him. And God did this and then you rebelled. And you're the sons of the ones that did it and you're the same way. And now God sent, did the greatest thing that God ever did. He sent His own Son. And He did the same thing to Him. Repent. And they, and they put their hands over their ears. And they, yeah, go ahead and read what happened. <laughs> All right, and they went and stoned Stephen. And now, Stephen was doing the same thing, making people not so comfortable in their situation. Hopefully, that some will see they need a Savior. One of the persons who was there was Paul. And when they stoned Stephen, he was holding their coats. And later, Jesus confronted him and he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. And this martyr the martyrdom of Stephen ushers ultimately into the salvation of Paul. Saul, who becomes Paul. Name changes. Remember that? That's important in the Bible. Alright, so we have finished, let me make a note. Um, through verse three. And we'll start with verse four, which is a new paragraph. I'm going to make notes so I get started at the right place. Today, the sermon is going to be on Philippians chapter 1, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. It was a fellowship time, and we'll see you upstairs at 10.30. God bless you.